Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Circa. In this episode of Killer Trip, we're headed to Paris during World War II to hear about how one of the most diabolical killers we've ever come across... A man literally known as Dr. Satan used the chaos of war to cover his unimaginable crimes. If you want to find out more about some of the places and people we mention or dive deeper into this story, download the Circa app from the iOS App Store. Inside, you'll find maps, notes, and pictures, plus immersive guides to the most interesting places in the world and the best travel podcasts. So put your headphones on, maybe wait for it to get dark. And listen closely. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. 1942, Paris, France. One of the greatest cities in the world a global center of science, fashion, cuisine, and one of the most heavily defended capitals in the world, has been occupied for two years now. The Nazi flag flies from the Eiffel Tower. Gestapo are everywhere, questioning anyone who dares to speak out against them or defy their control. There are curfews, rationing of food. The citizens of Paris won't see a proper new pair of shoes for four more years. The Nazis control almost every aspect of daily French life. Simply put, there's an iron grip on the city of light. But in 1942, the Gestapo begin hearing rumors about a man who can get anyone out of Paris. Anyone. 
Resistance fighters, Jews, assassins, criminals. These rumors grow until it's clear they're more than rumors. Someone in Paris has decoded the Nazis' dragnet and is getting people out. And they need to find out who it is and put a stop to it. They put a German officer named Robert Yudkum in charge of a small force tasked with ferreting out this super spy's underground railroad. The Nazis have been playing this double agent game for a long time. Yudkum singles out a Jewish prisoner named Ivan Dreyfus and blackmails him into helping. He is to pose as a Jew trying to escape Paris— not really a stretch for Dreyfus, and locate who is behind this underground railroad. Yudkum gives Dreyfus 25,000 francs to accomplish this task. Dreyfus puts the word out to his contacts, and in due time, he's given a name. This is it. If he can get this info and get it to Yudkum, this is his chance to get the Nazis off his back and save his own skin. Except... There's another way to look at this. If this man Dreyfus is trying to find is for real, isn't this an even bigger chance for him to really escape? Both seem possible, but there's only one way to be sure. He has to follow the lead and find him. Back at Gestapo headquarters, Yudkum is waiting to hear back from the team he has sent to follow Dreyfus. He's taken a big financial risk to make this happen. What if Dreyfus just takes the Franks and goes underground, or even worse, actually uses them to escape? And his fears, it turns out, are founded. At some point, Dreyfus and the man he's met up with shake the French Gestapo team following them and disappear. Yudkum has been had. Dreyfus is gone. And Yudkum is out 25,000 francs and is no closer to catching the master of escape of the Paris underground. Yudkum, of course, has no idea that the truth about Dreyfus is far worse than he could ever imagine. In the end, what Yudkum and all of France will soon learn is that just because something really monumentally horrible is happening in the world, or in your country, or in your town, it doesn't mean that other terrible things take a break. Children still go missing. Houses still burn. People are still killed in accidents. Murderers still find a way to murder. And sometimes, the chaos of that bigger evil creates the perfect cover for a more intimate kind of evil to take root. While one war rages above, a different fight for survival is taking place in one Paris cellar. This is the story of Dr. Satan. When I travel, I'm not interested in just visiting the beautiful beaches, the theme parks, and the tourist traps of a place. The well-manicured and sanitized story of it. I like to go deeper and darker. I like to find out what the darkest moments in history can tell us about the places where they happened. 
The crime is only the beginning of the story. This is Killer Trip. I'm your host, Dominique Ferrari. We've all heard the news interviews of shocked neighbors and friends of killers like Ted Bundy. They always say the same thing. He seemed so nice, so unsuspecting. He was quiet. He kept to himself. Well, this story is most certainly not that. Not by a long shot. This is the story of a guy who was obviously off. Obviously mentally ill. Obviously dangerous but who somehow, some way, was always just smart enough, just crazy enough, and just lucky enough to keep finding ways to get out of trouble. So, let's set the scene. It's Paris, 1914. Gay Paris on the eve of what would become World War I. Paris is one of the most rich, influential, and important cities in the world, in one of the most rich, influential, and important countries in the world. It's the focal point of fashion, the capital of cuisine, and a center of science and technology. The French discovered radioactivity. They invented film, antibiotics, the refrigerator, the baguette. And France also has what is believed to be the strongest military in the world. By sheer numbers and experience, the French army is regarded by almost everyone as an impenetrable force. Well, almost everyone. When war breaks out in Western Europe in 1914, most think this will be a short skirmish, perhaps over in a month or two. They're mistaken. The fields of France will become a meat grinder as the great powers of the world dig trenches and begin the bleeding. In just four years, from 1914 to 1918, 1.4 million French soldiers are killed in the muddy trenches of the First World War. It's a war that destroys the infrastructure of the entire country and decimates an entire generation of young French men. That's just the soldiers who are killed. Millions more are injured, maimed, and psychologically scarred permanently by what they have experienced. And one of those soldiers is Marcel Pichot. So why the French history lesson? Because it's impossible to tell the story of Marcel Pichot without understanding the emotional and psychological scars that existed in the place where he committed his crimes. The two are inextricably linked. Someone like Marcel Pichot doesn't get a chance to do the things he does, except in a society that's already overwhelmed, just trying to stabilize itself after almost complete destruction. The chaos and trauma in France are essentially a Dr. Jekyll's potion that enables a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Marcel Pichot. So... How was the original Dr. Death created? Born in France in 1897, the details of Marcel's early life are kind of hard to pin down. 
A lot of it may be rumors later created by the media to embellish what a monster he really was. But his story really needs no embellishment. What we know is that Marcel exhibited troubling psychological issues from the start. He was expelled from school multiple times. He pulled a gun on a female classmate. He made inappropriate sexual comments to people. And of course, he took part in that cliche but oh-so-true pastime that nearly all sociopaths and serial killers dabble in at some point. Animal torture. I mean, seriously, if animals could talk, they would be our literal canaries in the coal mine on serial killers. Um, hey guys, this dude has decapitated about 85 of us. So, you know, hide your wife, hide your kids. Anyway, if we're talking about red flags, then Marcel Pichot was more like a circus. So many red flags, it was almost impossible to fathom, and therefore, weirdly, hard to nail him down on just one. However, prior to World War I, we know that Marcel was eventually put into an asylum to be diagnosed and treated. And they did indeed diagnose him with a serious but amorphous psychological problem. You know how all those old diagnoses go. Melancholia, malaise of the mind, a dark nature. Very specific. Well, Marcel was all of those things. Why? There are no Dexter-esque origin stories that we're aware of. But when World War I begins in 1914, France needs warm bodies for the front lines more than it needs to improve its DSM. And so, Marcel is drafted and sent to the front lines, and any chance there might have been to rehabilitate his mental health, or at least keep him out of the public, is blown to smithereens, like a full 71% of the French soldiers that surround him. Marcel is gassed and injured on the front line in 1916, and by then, is clearly exhibiting signs of a mental breakdown. So, he's sent to several convalescence homes to heal, but his healing very quickly turns to stealing. Marcel is caught stealing morphine, army blankets, personal letters, pictures, wallets, and more. This clearly isn't out of necessity. This is pathological. He's charged with the blanket theft, but again, what France really needs are warm bodies, not prisoners. And so that ends up being a giant wet blanket tossed onto the fires of justice. Marcel is deployed again into active duty service and sent back to the front lines in 1918. Now, in theory, it's always a tragedy when someone dies, but let's be real. There are some people that you just can't help but fantasize how much better the world would have been if they'd have just caught that bullet. And World War I is full of those moments. While Marcel is sitting on the French front lines, Adolf Hitler is literally across no man's land in another trench, also gassed and injured and inches from death. Both these men have extreme near misses, but alas, both survive, and the world will pay the price. And anyway, an enemy's bullet never had a chance to take Marcel out on this second deployment. And that's because he takes matters into his own hands, or I guess foot. He arrives on the front and promptly shoots himself in the foot. That was that. 
Incapable of returning to active duty, Marcel is discharged, but he's clearly mentally unwell and the army recommends that he be committed to an asylum, again. But before they can see it through, the war finally ends. France has won, but it has also lost. More than it can even conceive. Entire graduating high school classes have been wiped out, literally. Every single young male in some villages are simply gone. And France, completely scarred and devastated by the loss of young men, commits itself to doing everything it can for its surviving men to reintegrate them into civilian life. A mountain of government programs pop up to give opportunities to veterans, the heroes and defenders of France, to pay them back for all they'd sacrificed. And this is when Marcel sees his opportunity. He applies for an accelerated medical program being offered to veterans like him. And so, instead of being committed to an asylum, he is soon interning at one as a medical student. Marcel makes it through medical school without setting off more alarm bells somehow, and then he aces his exam. And so by December of 1921, he is now Dr. Marcel Pichot. And here's where the story takes a truly dark turn. Up to this point, Marcel has always been an outsider, an obviously unwell individual, a misfit. His hometown knew how off he was. The army had too. But as far as we know, his crimes, while disturbing, were also petty. Theft, harassment, But now, armed with something arguably more powerful than a soldier's rifle, a medical degree, plus a hallowed veteran status to boot, Marcel finally has something he's never had before. Respect. The letters before his name, those two letters, vouch for his intelligence and inherent goodness to those around him. And his veteran status speaks to his character and his bravery. What can go wrong? Well, things almost immediately do. And I mean, right out of the gate, they do. Marcel quickly starts over-prescribing morphine to everyone that comes to him. He's clearly a fan of the stuff, going back to his army days. And here's the thing. If you're a sociopath and you really don't care about actually making your patients better, morphine is the way to go. It masks all the bad stuff and keeps your patients happy, pliable, and addicted to the service you offer. Everyone feels good on morphine, so it's a simple way for Marcel to curry favor with everyone who walks through his door. He is Dr. Feelgood. His reputation grows as his patients, probably high on morphine, sing his praises. Marcel does things to help bolster his own reputation, too. He prints flyers saying that he's the premier doctor in town and that, as a younger physician, only he knows the most cutting-edge treatments. All lies, but Marcel's never really been a stickler for the truth. One flyer reads, quote, Intelligent patients have confidence in him. Dr. Pichot treats but does not exploit his patients, end quote. In fact, that's the definition of what Dr. Pichot is doing. Besides the morphine-a-palooza, he's also secretly enrolled his patients in a government program, meaning that he's being paid twice, once by the patient 
and once by the French government. But as far as everyone around him knows, he's a total success story. A young veteran making good on his second chance and saving lives. And soon, he actually is one of the go-to doctors in his town, Vinip Souvionne, in the Burgundy region of France. Sure, there are a few pesky problems, like that one time when he prescribes morphine to a child and almost kills him. And perhaps it should have set off a few more alarm bells when, confronted with this fact by a pharmacist, Dr. Pachot replies that he would have been doing the mother a favor since the child was, quote, basically useless. But you know that title, doctor, just confers so much trust that people seem unable to recognize what's really going on. Dr. Pachot, now fully in his power and confident in his ability to get away with almost anything, is about to take it to a level almost unimaginable. That's after the break. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. So let's pick back up where we left off. Dr. Pachot is the premier physician in his town. He's also supplying half the town with a steady stream of morphine. Several years go by and people seem to love him, including the daughter of one of his patients. In 1926, Marcel begins dating a young girl named Louise Delavoux. Their love affair burns hot, but within a few months, it burns out. That's because several months after their affair begins, Luis disappears. Her distraught family call the police in, but they turn up very little. But there is one odd fact of the case. When the police question Marcel's neighbors, they report seeing him loading a very large, very heavy trunk into his car one night. The police question Marcel, who denies it, and with no sign of this supposed trunk, they drop it. The police log Luis as a runaway. Strangely, though, her family's run of bad luck isn't over, because not long after the police question Marcel, her parents' home burns down. Then, several weeks later, a trunk is pulled from the river that runs through town. It's filled with body parts, but with no way to identify them, no CSI or DNA CODA system, nobody can be sure who the body is. Now, you might think that faced with gone girl-level scrutiny in the disappearance of his girlfriend and the subsequent disaster by fire that befell her parents, that Marcel might want to keep a low profile. Let it blow over. That isn't his style. He instead 
runs for mayor and wins. How, you might ask? Well, armed with a brilliant 14-point plan to rebuild the infrastructure of... (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. He pays a man to set fires in town on the night of the debate during his opponent's speech. As his opponent takes the stage, mayhem unfolds in town, and Marcel ends up winning in a landslide. And now, as a veteran, a doctor, and a mayor, his ego has never been bigger. Nothing can touch him now, it seems. So he takes up his old pastime, stealing, but this time with the power of the state behind him. He steals power, as in actual electricity, coal, money. Uh, He embezzles left and right, anything he can. Then he marries the daughter of a rich businessman, Georgette Lebla. And in 1928, they welcome a son, Gerhardt, and life goes on. People accuse him of stealing, but he tells everyone these are just the lies of his opponents, trying to undermine him and the good work he, a doctor, a veteran, and now a father, is trying to do. But then in 1930, he runs into another problem. That year... There's a huge fire at a dairy owner's house. When the fire department arrives, they find the owner's wife, Henrietta, inside, but they immediately deduce she hasn't died in the fire. She's been beaten to death. The police start asking questions, and soon they talk to a Mr. Frascott. Mr. Frascott is actually a friend of Dr. Pachot. In fact, he'd introduced him to Luis Delavoux all those years ago. And more recently, he'd also introduced him to the dairy owner's wife, Henrietta. He and other neighbors report to the police that they'd seen Marcel near the house before the fire. It seems like a pretty solid case developing against Dr. Pachot. And it becomes even more solid when Mr. Frascott agrees to testify to what he saw and what he believes, that Henrietta was Dr. Pachot's mistress. But before Mr. Frascott can testify, Dr. Pachot must catch wind of what he knows. So he invites him to dinner to talk. Over dinner, Mr. Frascott complains of a flare-up of painful rheumatism he's having. Dr. Pachot tells him about a new experimental treatment out of Paris that he could administer. Mr. Frascott, in pain, agrees. Dr. Pachot gives him an injection. Hours later, Mr. Frascott is dead of an apparent aneurysm. Hmm, sure. With no evidence against him, the case falls apart. However, claims that Marcel is stealing from the town don't. They continue to dog him until eventually he's forced to resign. Ah, finally, the town has seen the light. No, the town council actually resigns with him in solidarity, so convinced they are that all the charges against him are the work of his political enemies. Though Marcel has always managed to avoid being convicted of anything serious, at a certain point, this much smoke does seem to look like fire. His reputation is taking a hit in such a small town, and so he decides to head to Paris aided by the anonymity 
and pool of victims a huge city like Paris offers, Marcel has a new lease on life and death. As with his previous iteration, he opens up a medical practice on the Rue des Camartines, talks up his skills, and begins prescribing everyone morphine. It works like a charm. Again. Marcel has several more run-ins with the law for stealing and other petty offenses. But as before, he always wiggles out. And the good he does, or rather the amount of people he has hooked on morphine and dependent on him, always keep him in high demand and high regard. Eventually, this regard is so high that he's given a certificate as a médecine d'état civil, a doctor who can issue death certificates, essentially the coroner or medical examiner, an incredibly important position. Now, is his medical career trouble-free? No. He literally kills a woman who goes in for a tooth abscess with an overdose of morphine and much, much more. He really is the original Dr. Death, but nothing ever sticks. Until he shoplifts. Yes, overdoses, fine. Embezzlement, fine. Arson, nothing. But then he's caught shoplifting, something so simple. But when a policeman approaches him, Marcel beats him severely. Now, a judge is paying attention. Marcel is actually hauled in for trial. During his trial, he cries and tells the court that sometimes he has funny spells, where he blacks out and loses control, a remnant of his time on the front lines defending France in World War I. He lost himself. Temporary insanity. The court is sympathetic. And even more so when he tells them, at his wife's urging, that he will voluntarily commit himself to a sanatorium for treatment. Voila, it's a deal. He checks into the clinic. But within days, he's made a miraculous recovery. He tells the staff that he feels completely fine, completely himself again, and that he's ready for release. They can't keep him against his will, and so he's soon free. Now it's 1937. World War II is brewing, but has not erupted just yet in Europe. The next few years go by without a major incident. Well, there is this one tax evasion thing, but again, he's just a poor veteran trying to rebuild his life. Then, in 1939, Germany invades Poland, and World War II is officially on. France and England side with their ally Poland. This can't stand. They ready their defenses, especially France. Still haunted by the killing fields of trench warfare in World War I, they vow to never again let Germany invade their nation and lay waste to their cities. France has spent the years since World War I building the Maginot Line, the most impressive defensive wall built since arguably the Great Wall of China. It runs almost the entire length of the French border with Germany. There is no way the Germans can break through such a... Just kidding. They go around the wall, through Belgium and the Ardennes Forest. Then they attack the wall from behind. Yeah, the wall didn't think of that. 
Germany, which had fought to a brutal stalemate with France for almost five years in World War I over mere yards, now conquers France, the entire thing, in weeks. Like, six weeks. That is one-third of an NFL season. German tanks roll into Paris. Nazi flags fly everywhere. And France is now a client state of Germany. There are some in France who resist, aptly named the French resistance, but many of those in power in France believe that there is no fighting the Nazis and agree to go along. They form what is known as the Vichy government. To some of them, they're simply making the best of a terrible situation, preventing further French death and destruction. But to those who refuse to bow to the Nazis, they're collaborators. A word so filthy that when the war is over, a reign of terror like that which followed the French Revolution will take place and make these Nazi collaborators face the firing squads. Germany is now firmly in control of Paris. But there are those who work underground to sabotage their efforts. They plant bombs, misinformation, They even sabotage the gas tanks of some of the military jeeps they're now being forced to build for the German army. They make it so that they register faulty tank measurements, which leads entire groups of German trucks to simply run out of gas during their invasion of Russia. Go French resistance. And in this resistance, Marcel sees another golden opportunity. He starts his work with the resistance small, writing fake medical certificates for people looking to get out of working for the Nazis, which is basically slave labor. He writes people medical excuses, and they're exempted. His reputation as a friend of the resistance grows. And soon, with his growing list of resistance connections, he begins building his own network of spies, a clandestine group Dr. Pichot codenames the Fly Talks Network. He and his compatriots in the Fly Talks network are gathering as much intel and information as they can on the Gestapo and the Nazis. Information Pichot can use, probably to great financial gain, when the time is right. His network soon grows to include several Spanish connections across the border. And with this network, he's able to create an underground railroad. Spain has managed to stay neutral in this war, meaning if people on the run from the Nazis can somehow get across the French border into Spain, they can escape, truly escape. Marcel now holds the keys to that underground railroad. And as we well know, Marcel doesn't do this work out of the kindness of his heart. He expects to get rich off it. He charges anywhere from 25,000 to 200,000 francs. That's about 7,000 to $55,000 in today's money to anyone trying to get out of France via his underground railroad. Sure, getting fake Spanish and Argentine papers isn't free, but there's no question he's extorting money out of these people. But in the end, most people are willing to pay. And one by one, he takes their money and helps them disappear. His reputation and bank account grow. Soon, he purchases a second house on the Rue de Sur. After all, real estate has never been cheaper in the hollowed-out shell of Paris. 
And after years of his steady black market work, Germany and Robert Yudkum, that German officer from the top of the episode, finally catch wind of it. Rumors of a master escape artist at work in Paris keep finding their way to him. This person, known on the streets as Dr. Eugène, has helped countless people, assassins, criminals, and Jewish families, get to Spain and then to South America. And so, Yudkum deploys Dreyfus as his spy to find out just who Dr. Eugène is. But Dreyfus uses the money to escape himself. Unfazed, the Nazis double down on their search. But no matter how hard they tighten the vice of their dragnet, people continue to get out. Joseph Riacru and Adrian Estebetega, known criminals and robbers, gone. Dr. Paul Leon Braunberger, a prominent Jewish doctor and his wife, gone. The Neller family, gone. The Wolf family, gone. Their relieved relatives receive postcards from their loved ones on their journey. A ballsy move proving just how untouchable this Fly Talks network feels. Then, finally, in 1943, a break in the case. The Nazis, having allocated serious resources to find this Dr. Eugène, are able to infiltrate the Flytox network with the help of a Nazi collaborator, Charles Beretta. Now, Beretta doesn't know Dr. Eugène's real name or location, but he does know of three people who have just paid him to escape. The Nazis promptly round up these three men, who had all paid their massive sum of francs to be smuggled out of France, and torture them for information. They give the Nazis everything they know, and this time, it's enough. The Nazis connect the dots, and realize that Dr. Pachot is Dr. Eugène. They raid Dr. Pachot's house on the Rue de Camartine and arrest him. He is taken in and tortured. We're talking holes drilled in his teeth, tortured. They want the names of the resistance fighters he's been working with. Who else has been helping him? Marcel, which you may find surprising, refuses to talk. It would be the first and only selfless act he's ever done. No names are given, no confessions made, no other arrests, nothing of import is found at Marcel's house, and eventually, eight months later, he's released. He's now a hero once again, and this time with a fresh set of torture scars to prove it. On March 11th, 1944, a call comes in to the French authorities. It comes from the Rue de Sur. Neighbors there complain of a foul stench coming from a house there, and a chimney that's been belching out noxious smoke for days. The fire department responds, and when they arrive and enter the basement of the house, they discover body parts everywhere. In the oven, in a lime pit dissolving, in bags, in suitcases. It's enough, they figure, to comprise almost a dozen bodies. There is also a strange, small, bare, triangular cement room that locks from the outside and has a peephole to peer into it. But that's not all. They find more suitcases, around 60 mismatched pieces of luggage, 
with clothes and all other kinds of valuables for a lot more people. And the names of some of these people are familiar. These are the people who had supposedly been smuggled out of Paris by Dr. Eugène, a.k.a. Dr. Pichot. One by one, for nearly four years, Dr. Pichot had collected his huge sum of francs, taken these hopeful escapees to his basement, told them he needed to inoculate them so that they could cross the Spanish border, and instead injected them with cyanide or possibly with air. They were dead in minutes. Some were criminals, yes, but others were women, children, girlfriends, terrified Jews who'd already escaped near death in other countries. And the numbers were staggering. Upwards of 150 people that we know of were probably killed by him. I know what you're thinking. This, this is it. Now everybody knows the real Dr. Pichot, the monster. But no. War warps more than battlefields and soldiers' minds. It can warp entire societies. The truth becomes lies. Evil becomes necessary. Enemies become friends. Dr. Pichot told his friends and colleagues that this was the work of the propagandist collaborators. And furthermore, that anyone who was killed in that house by him or anyone from his Flytox network was killed precisely because they were a collaborator. These weren't murders. These were political assassinations meant to help the resistance. And many believe him. He changes his name to Henri Valéry, changes his appearance, and goes on the run, scooting from place to place, being hidden by ally after ally. Soon, he joins the French Forces of the Interior, the FFI, the official resistance party against the Nazis, and is given a role in it under his new identity. Dr. Pichot, now Henri Valéry, uses his position of power as he always has, to enrich himself. He convinces several other members to murder a wealthy mayor, who he says was a Nazi collaborator, and take 2.5 million francs from him. They do. Those francs have never been found. Eventually, Germany is pushed out of France and on their heels as the Allies begin to win the war. As life starts to settle back into order in Paris, newly freed from Nazi occupation, that pesky case of Dr. Pichot rises again to the forefront of people's minds and the news cycle. Hey, whatever happened to that doctor who killed literally dozens of people and then went on the run? It was time to restore law and order in Paris under a reformed and Nazi-free French police force. They form a task force to find him, and incredibly, by several accounts, Henri Valéry, a.k.a. Dr. Pichot, is at one point on this force. He's looking for himself. In case you're wondering, the French word for balls is couille. But eventually, the French authorities put all the pieces together and realize that Valéry is Pichot. And now, Dr. Pichot must go on the run again. He changes his appearance, grows a beard, and tries to get out of Dodge. Henri 
on October 30th, 1945, he's discovered at a train station with a suitcase of money and over 50 false ID documents. He's also carrying the ration card for a seven-year-old boy, Rene Neller, who he'd supposedly help escape. He's arrested and put to trial. He once again tries to use his status as a veteran of not one, but now two wars to get off. He tells the court of all his work with the Fly Talks Network, of the countless good deeds he did, taking out the Gestapo and collaborators. And he doubles down on the claim that any bodies in that house were simply Nazi agents or collaborators that he had ridden the world of. But this time, without the crush of occupation and world war capping their ability to do almost anything, the court is actually able to investigate his claims. And when they do, they discover that all of it is lies. Resistance member after resistance member are brought in and questioned about what role Dr. Pachot had played in their efforts. And none of them recognize him or have ever heard of the Fly Talks Network. It was all a fantasy he'd cooked up to keep a steady stream of victims heading into his cellar. Of the 27 murders he's officially accused of, those are the ones with enough physical evidence to hopefully convince a jury. Dr. Pachot does confess to some of them, but maintains his defense that those murders were just Nazi collaborators that he and the Fly Talks Network took care of. All of the others are the work of the French Gestapo trying to frame him, or, you know, something else that sounds reasonable. He's also found guilty of stealing 200 million francs, none of which has ever been found. He's sentenced to die by beheading. Soldiers get the firing squad. Criminals get the guillotine. And the judge and jury aren't buying his Patriot Act anymore. Not to say that others aren't. His trial is an absolute media circus. The courtroom is packed with people wanting his autograph. Photographers and onlookers alike get a tour of his house of horrors during the trial. But in the end... Justice finally prevails. On May 25th, 1946, he's led to the guillotine. When asked if he wants to see a priest, he replies, No, I am a traveler who is taking all his baggage with him. As his head is placed in the guillotine, his last words are, Gentlemen, I ask you not to look. This will not be pretty. And then he smiles. The guillotine falls and the reign of Dr. Satan officially comes to an end. And that is the story of Dr. Satan. What's so striking about this story isn't just the sheer number of victims Dr. Pacho killed or the heartless manner in which he did it. To me, it's that these horrific crimes happened against the backdrop of one of the greatest global crimes ever committed, the Holocaust. As I said at the top, it's a strange fact of life that just because other worldwide level disasters are unfolding, it doesn't stop other crimes from happening. Dr. Petro's crimes might appear like a lightning bug in front of a lighthouse when you take the 30,000 foot view. But to the friends and families of those he murdered, they were much more than that. 
He preyed on the hope and desperation of people willing to risk it all to escape. And I can't think of anything more sadistic. It's important to keep your eyes on the big picture, always. But in doing so, you can't lose sight of the details in that picture. So next time you're looking up, don't forget to look down. Thank you for listening to this episode of Killer Trip. Check out all our other episodes of Killer Trip wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also download it in our Circa app. And with a Circa subscription, you'll unlock so much more. Immersive guides to Barcelona, London, Costa Rica, New York City, and some of the best travel podcasts around, including our fan favorite series, Passport. Download the Circa app from the iOS store to check it out. All right, guys, see you next crime. Circa, love the world you live in and will help you explore it.